Who's that? Who's that? examines a group of World War I recruitment posters to identify the rhetorical device devices used by the New Zealand government to simultaneously persuade and then compel its audience to help to win the war through what Stephen Loveridge calls cultural mobilization. Oh, I need to have a medical zapper here. She did tell me. There are two themes, men and money. Um, since we've got a little bit of extra time, I may be actually able to, to cover the money, but I was thinking that, that if I only had 20 minutes, I wouldn't be able to cover the money in any sort of great detail. Um, that reflect the prevailing discourses of duty and of personal responsibility, which almost by default includes discourses of shirking one's duty and failure to shoulder one's responsibility. The posters were part of a system which included advertisements in newspapers, placards, and lantern slides, and were displayed conspicuously from end to end of the Dominion. And this is one of these um, enlistment stations or recruiting stations that, that Ewan was talking about. Um, where is that? That's, that's actually in Auckland. And you can see a gentleman there with a little poster, or one of the typographic posters behind him. The posters you see here are the ones that were sent from, from England to to um, try to persuade men to enlist. Uh, social semiotician Theo van Leeuwen speaks of the utility of the direct address, epitomized in the word you, and reinforced by imperatives, um, which a producer of advertising can ensure that his message or her message is clear to its intended audience. The recruitment posters that feature um, uh, Kitchener, Uncle Sam and Churchill in the Second World War are examples of this direct address and the pointy finger in the U. Um, I will demonstrate to some extent how many of the posters in, in, in this paper use a less explicit but nonetheless unequivocal address and how that produces connotative messages that reflect their contemporary circumstances. I will examine how these messages are conveyed multimodally in the textual language and in to a certain extent, the typography or graphic language. Um, the posters that I'm going to show you are very little different from the typographic posters that were produced in Great Britain. I don't know about other places like South Africa and Canada, although since I'm also Canadian, I should know, but I don't. Um, the most almost exclusive use of sans serif in these uh, posters prefigured the German designs in ideological attachment to the style after the war, which I guess is pretty useful. Using German um, typefaces wouldn't hardly be useful. The sans serif on these posters was the display letter um, inherited from a 19th century poster advertiser. 
Now, the reason why I'm just addressing that now is simply because they are almost all like that, and there's no point in pointing, pointing it out individually. The first and major section of this page deals with recruitment, recruiting men. New Zealand historian Peter Gibbons notes that, that apart from a group of dissenting socialists, there was never any question, either in Parliament or in public, that New Zealand would not follow Britain's lead. So when Britain declared war on the 4th of August 1914, New Zealand was automatically at war. All of these recruitment posters were produced immediately prior to or following the introduction of conscription. I could find no posters that advertise for men under the volunteerist system. And there's obviously reasons for that. If you volunteer, you don't need to probably be persuaded to do it. The New Zealand government was able to quickly raise expeditionary forces from an existing territorial armour and keen volunteers. There was an initial rush to enlist by enthusiastic young men, ignorant of the possible consequences, eager to demonstrate their loyalty to the empire, and keen for an adventure. The first force was sent to occupy Western Samoa within five days of Britain's request. Now that, um, the reason for that, of course, Western Samoa was German. So within five days, or probably seven days or eight days, of the declaration of war, Germany had lost her first bit of territory. Um, the second expeditionary force, like this um, Canterbury contingent here, was ready to go to the Middle East a month later. So it was, they were pretty quick to, to, to mobilize them. And part of this had to do with the fact that they did have this force anyway in 1909. They um, introduced military service, so they had a group of men ready to go and, and trained to go. Most of these men did end up, and most of these men ended up quite literally in Gallipoli. What historian Michael King calls the necessary myth of New Zealand's coming of age circulated around these ensuing, devast ensuing devastation at Gallipoli and the publication of casualty lists at home. To make any sense of the horrors of this campaign, it was crucial to construct a set of cultural values that saw the defeat as, as sacred and the sacrifice as noble and inevitable. The result was a series of jingoistic stock phrases and modes of address used on the posters that I'm going to show you today. We can see some of these in David uh, McLaren's poem, a love of country and a duty to the empire, the rightness of the cause and the giving of, or sacrifice of oneself in the spirit of that. The poem argues that it is worse to live as cowards than to die in honest fight, suggesting that those who decline to sacrifice themselves for the cause were somehow deficient in the necessary virtues. It invokes the voices of women and children to call for their men to do their duty, and you can see that also reiterated in the um, poster that even shows you of the, the woman and the child watching the men going off to war. This was a personal sacrifice that every man should decide for himself to offer to his country on a voluntary basis, as there was a general consensus that every, every eligible man, and they were often called eligibles, Every eligible man should be prepared to fight. There was little appetite for conscription before 1915 or in early 1915. Voluntarism was also consistent with New Zealand's view of itself as a nation with virtues of patriotism, 
manliness and initiative, its loyalty to the empire and its commitment to, to the empire's war. Ideologically, New Zealanders have a keen sense of freedom and a colonial aversion to being pushed around and told what to do. But by the middle of 1915, all the keen young men had gone, and only the more serious-minded older men were prepared to volunteer. Men said they would go when needed, but would not enlist otherwise. Some hoped that the war would be over before they felt compelled to enlist. Many hoped for exemption on military or medical grounds. Some eligible men simply, simply refused. These were the shirkers, who often boasted about it. Other eligible men would not volunteer until the shirkers did, feeling that there should be an equality of sacrifice. This allowed those concerned about New Zealand's image to maintain the fiction that conscription would equalize men's contribution rather than highlight the shortage of volunteers. It was kind of a, a New Zealand pride thing. It may have happened in other countries, I don't know. It became clear to the government and eventually to the country that while volunteerism was preferable, some form of conscription was necessary to recruit the required manpower. In late 1915, the process of compiling a census of all eligible men began. The posters announcing the 1915 war census were produced on 18 October, 18 October. They were delivered from one end of New Zealand to the other and were to be displayed simultaneously at 7 a.m. in the morning of the 26th of October. The 21st of October edition of the Evening Post, which was the Wellington um, Evening Newspaper, who had obviously got some pre-knowledge of this, commented that these publicly accessible messages would flash out from post offices, railway stations, factories, shop windows, sheep stations, and wherever men were likely to congregate and see them. Though um, through isolation from the surrounding text and the use of other case, the posters emphasized that every man between the ages of 17 and 60 if a British citizen and medically fit is required to complete a personal schedule by Tuesday, 9 November. The British citizen was, was, was quite important. Foreigners, um, which included Chinese, were not um, invited to fill in this census. Newspaper articles that ran concurrently with the posters argue that speed in concluding this task was itself a national service as it hastened New Zealand's preparedness to give a maximum of aid to the mother country. The Post reported two days later that the red and black lettering arrests the public eye. It did note, however, that the <coughs> modest print was not easily legible, but concedes that such a poster was sufficient curiosity value to, to um, engender some interest and provoke further inquiry. While it's clear that um, the small type would not have been legible, certainly the, 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 the large headlines would have been. Graphic emphasis on a personal schedule leaves no doubt that self-agency is crucial. The pointed hand device on the large red warning sign states, un states unequivocally that the onus is on the individual to obtain a schedule, complete it, and return it to the proper authority even if he'd not received one in the post. Now, letter carriers, what they call letter carriers, postmen, I guess, in those days, 
um, delivered one to every single mailbox. But if you didn't have a mailbox, it, the the onus was on you to, to to find get one yourself and make sure that you dealt with it. Should anyone be in perplexity about this matter, the poster clearly states that failure to shoulder this responsibility will result in what would then have been um, quite a hefty fine or even a term of, of imprisonment. All these posters that I'm showing you are actually chronological, so they follow one along the other. So it sort of tells the story of conscription, basically. The language in this poster is, an, is a mixture of multimodal address. It has imperatives, denotative direct <coughs> address, connotative indirect, and appeals to, to assume self-perception of the early 20th century New Zealand man. He is told in strong military language to halt, register his name, and then reminded to register now. The imperatives are reinforced graphically through uppercase setting and red printing. More directly, he is addressed as a member of the manhood of New Zealand and reminded of his relationship to early exemplars of New Zealand patriotic manhood in the reference to his forefathers, who would, of course, have been the so-called pioneers um, or the immigrants to New Zealand in the, um, in, the, in the 19th century. He is addressed also as a reinforcement, which puts him within a continuum of manhood. The poster is obviously a vehicle of mass communication, but the second person address, you, is used in a number of ways to personalize it. It calls on a sense of personal duty. Your empire depends on you. Appeals to an individual sense of guilt. Are you, by your neglect, going to deprive the empire? And on future guilt, don't feel the rest of your life that you shirked your duty when the empire's existence depended on your help. Oh, no pressure. It would seem difficult to resist all these jingoistic appeals to men's sense of patriotism and manly self-regard. I often wonder if we would actually fall for those kinds of things these days. Probably not. This poster followed on from the registration of eligible men and prefigured uh, the final introduction of conscription in November 1916 when it became quite clear that conscription was going to be absolutely necessary. Advice to display it in a conspicuous place and, and notice that the defacement was an offence is printed in the, in the top left-hand corner. You probably can't read it, but it's up there. Nevertheless, there were many people who, for diverse reasons, were reluctant to display the posters. In October 1915, a group of Wellington shopkeepers refused to display the war census posters that I showed you earlier, commenting that they had no interest in contributing to a national stock-taking exercise um, if it was going to take up window space they could more profitably use to display their goods. Needless to say, it was reported as a peculiar act by little, narrow, selfish, and arguably unpatriotic minds more concerned with private business than with great national work. In 1916, George Samuel Thompson of Christchurch was fined 50 pounds for his breach of duty in, by refusing to display a military poster, and it was probably this one because the date sort of matches, um, on the grounds that he was an international socialist. So there was a, there was a, a, a fairly notable um, climate of dissent among certain types. As the poster notes, there were two enrollments. The first division was to consist of unmarried, divorced, or separated men, um, or those that married after the 1st of May 1915 and without young children. The second division was to be other all eligible 
or other eligible men between 20 and 46. The obligations were cast as personal responsibilities. As this poster preempts conscription by about six weeks, there was no compulsion, and so enrollment relied on each man understanding that it was, it was his duty to enroll, though it was clear that he actually must do this duty. This poster takes with one hand and gives, gives with another, emphasized graphically to a greater or lesser degree. The right-hand column offers the possibility of only the chance of a ballot, and therefore also of not being balloted, to those who enroll. Those who do not will face another fate. They will go straight to the um, immobilization camps and then off to war. Those who fail to notify any change of address, which was required in the war census enrollment, um, or the war census enrollment, yes, are assumed to be deserters. It notes that um, employers are restricted from employing either the unenrolled or the deserter. Contrary to peacetime law, of course, this, this requires that, that, that people are able to demonstrate that they haven't broken the law rather than the other way around, which does happen in peace. Without strictly being legally compelling, there is an air of compulsion in almost everything this poster represents. Nevertheless, there were many men who managed to dodge the ballot in one way or another, and like the Shukas, they were not averse to boasting about it. This caused more tensions in the issue of equality of sacrifice. Some resentment among uh, returned soldiers and others, often women, towards those who looked as if they should be in khaki and were not, was alleviated by a system of identification. The left-hand column notes that reservists who have enrolled and were awaiting a ballot and those who had volunteered but had not been accepted or were exempted for some reason would be issued with documentation to that effect. The National Recruiting Board, um, following Britain's lead, implemented a further more visible system of identifying these groups of men. Breaking the bounds of the box containing the message suggests that armbands are a phenomenon to be given some attention. The badges are official and the poster's message was directed towards those members of the public who may have misconstrued the appearance of a fit man on their streets. The badges indicate that the man who wears it has, has served honorably in the battlefield or is serving usefully at home. The three words um, in red there help to uh, solidify the, the arm badges, khaki and scarlet, so people can actually see quite clearly what they were about. The box on the right asks the public to remember that the Empire's badge, one of these, stands for the Empire's Medal, which seems to be a slightly disingenuous reference to the Empire Medal, um, given for particular acts of gallantry, acts of gallantry. The colonial newspaper of, or the Colonist newspaper of October 1915 reporting on the distribution of the personal schedules that were to be completed for the war census, which I showed you earlier, noted that full-blooded Maoris or half-class Maoris living as Maoris were exempt. Many uh, men from the Napui Arawa, Natipura, Natikahanunu Iwi or tribes had been early enthusiastic supporters of the war and were among the first to volunteer in 1914 often independently as part of the wider expeditionary forces. Unfortunately, a singular Maori contingent 
was discouraged as the British Army Council disapproved of men of color taking up arms against white men. And I think the keynote speaker yesterday mentioned that. James Allen, the Minister of Defense, argued that although they are a colored race, I think it would be apparent on their arrival that they are different to the ordinary colored race, whatever that means. Finally, they accepted Maori, or a Maori or a native contingent, um, but only for garrison duty. In spite of this, the contingent was, was trained for combat, and Maori eventually were allowed to fight and consequently die at Gallipoli. Maori MPs such as Apirana Nata, Maui Pomare, and Teirangi Hiro argued against the exclusion of Maori from the Military Services Act of 1916. They felt that becoming Pākehā, in other words, white, was the only way that Maori would survive, and fighting in Pākehā wars was one way to demonstrate their equality and worthiness of the benefits of citizenship. Though uh, Maori recruitment, like that of Pākehā, slowed during 1916, it picked up, and by 1917, the newly formed Maori Pioneer Battalion never fell below its established strength. But there was a larger issue for the government that appears to have been had little to do with the shortage of Māori volunteers. Māori were not, and still are not, a unified race. In the early 1900s, they lived in tribal systems, often separate from each other, and some in some opposition to Pākehā authority. This latter includes Waikato, Maniapoto, Ngāti Paua, uh, Tūhoi, and Atiawa. Each had land confiscated in the New Zealand Wars of 1860s that Ewan mentioned and had no reason or certainly no wish to support the authority that they held responsible for that. While this poster appears to compel all Maori men to enroll, and it actually does say there, all Maori men must enroll, Alan assured the other North Island tribes or iwi, that in fact it targeted the men of Waikato who were, who he felt were particularly recalcitrant. Um, no Waikato men enrolled, and certainly very few from those other tribes that I just mentioned earlier. In the end, no, no Māori conscripts were sent overseas. For a variety of reasons, and some of them were very hilarious and ingenious, the uh, conscription of Waikato Māori was held up and the war was over before the government could marshal sufficient men to form a battalion. And interesting, unlike Pākehā, where we were told to go to the post office or the, uh, the, the um, defence office to enrol, Māori were told to go to the police station. I'm not quite sure what that was about. <laughs> so how much time have I got left? Um, well, that was five minutes or something. Five minutes or Well, it's half past, but we can... But we're yeah. my first speaker, of course, so... Yeah. Okay. So I'll just, I'll just talk a little bit about the money then. Yeah. Um, Hello. Off you go. I've done these. For, I've got them separately, but I think I'll just do the four so you can kind of see what's what's going on here. War costs money, obviously, and New Zealand spent, compar spent comparatively more of its what we now call the GDP, I guess, than any other Dominion. Um, and I think actually it sent comparatively more men than any other Dominion as well. The government used a number of rhetorical strategies to raise funds for clothes, food, and munitions. In compared, in, it compared the sacrifice of life to the sacrifice of funds. It referred 
not just to gallant soldiers, but our gallant soldiers, thus making, uh, invoking a sense of responsibility towards them. Our men, in other words, your men, are giving their lives in the war effort. All you need to do is give a little of your money towards it. On a number of those posters, it says that nobody is so poor that they could not contribute something. If sentiment or guilt did not move you, then an eye towards profit might, through, um, might as the liberty loans, with liberty of course having its own connotations under the circumstances, the liberty loans and, and, and certificates accrued interest and some were not subject to income tax. In case this didn't move you to contribute, the posters advised that just as men were uh, proving themselves in the battlefield, it was now your duty to do so with money. A win-win is offered in one of these posters. You help your country, you help yourself. I'm not sure which one it is, but there's all kinds of ways of trying to persuade people that um, it, it's something that they really must do no matter how poor they were. And there were some pretty poor people in New Zealand at this time. 16 shillings would have been an awful lot of money. This is one of the posters I think that was probably printed in Britain, like the big the lion posters, and then just had these little bits at the end added because it was actually printed by the government print in New Zealand, but that looks like that was has been the, the bit for if you were in South Africa there would have been a South African bit. While this poster does state that it was printed by the government printer, as I said, it was probably done largely in, print in Britain. And I think there was a printing I I issue, really, and a cost issue. It cost a lot of money to print colour. Um, in this case, the statistics of men and money supplied are related to New Zealand's contribution. The dip in enrolments in the years 1916 to 17, before conscription really got underway, compares not so well with the steady increase in monetary contributions. And in fact, more men didn't go than did go. So perhaps they felt that giving money would be the best thing to do. Easier, I imagine, to contribute 16 shillings than sacrifice your life. Thank you. Nobody else is so just us. No, yeah, some of you may have read.